love you all very much. Your pastors love you. So we get today uh, the delight of digging into the sacraments uh, and have just so enjoyed studying this and living this and seeing this over the years. Uh, the sacraments, of course, are symbolic. Uh, and we'll, we'll dig into what they symbolize. Um, and it's important to realize the importance of symbolism. God is a God of symbolism. On some level, all the created order is symbolic. Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So all of creation is one big giant symbol or image of God. And then God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. And so somehow in our maleness and our femaleness and together as man, we image God. We're symbols of God. God's symbolism is holy. It is other God's symbolism is a window into another world, into another dimension. God's symbolism goes from the lesser to the greater. The symbol is the shadow of the reality. God's symbolism is a window into God himself. If we find creation amazing, God is more amazing, infinitely more amazing. God not only symbolized himself in all creation, but he filled scripture with hundreds, maybe thousands of symbols that point to spiritual realities that reveal God and his purposes. Think of the tabernacle of Moses and all its intricacies. The temple of Solomon and all of its intricacies. Think of the many sometimes strange symbolic, symbolic acts done by the prophets. Think of the complex sacrificial rites that the priests had to perform in many different animals, different ways, and burnings, and, and it's just crazy, really. Not crazy, Lord, it's actually wonderful, but it is mind-boggling. These symbol, symbolic acts were intended to set Israel apart from those who did not know or serve the true and living God. They were to reveal and to set Israel apart. So the myriad of sacramental symbols under the Old Testament still carry rich meaning, but they are all replaced in the New Testament by just two. Thousands of years and thousands of symbols are fulfilled in the church in two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the New Covenant Sacraments. So again, the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith, and let's just think about it carefully again as we get ready to study this. The sacraments are precious means of grace that signify the benefits of the gospel, confirm its promise to believers, and visibly distinguish the church from the world. Lord Jesus instituted two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper for faithful observance by the church 
till he returns. Hallelujah. Now the problem with symbols is that people are prone to worship the symbol instead of worshiping God. We see that in the Old Testament. And on the other end of the spectrum, God's symbolism is ignored or profaned. These problems plagued Israel and have plagued and still plague the church. And so we see in the church where what God intended to teach us and instruct us, people have mistakenly used and applied and sadly for centuries different churches have misunderstood the symbolism in the sacraments and have added other sacraments which God did not give. We see sadly in our society where symbolic Christian imagery is being profaned. We can see churches that seem to ignore and disregard the sacraments, practice them incorrectly. So, let us dig into Scripture to ground ourselves in what God's Word says about the sacraments. And we'll look in Scripture first at baptism and then look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, two sermons for the price of one. No extra charge for that. So just relax and enjoy it. We want to stand firm on what is clear in Scripture. So we have two guiding principles as we, as we study these really very clear sacraments in Scripture, but yet are practiced differently in different places. We want to have two principles to guide us. Clarity and charity. We want to stand firmly on what is clearly evident to us in Scripture while having charity for those who would differ. You may find that as I speak, there's some things in here that you differ on. And that may be okay. May not be okay. <laughs> so we'll work through all that. In fact, I would be delighted to sit down and work through it with you. But for Christians, there are Christians who sincerely seek to do God's will, who land differently in different places on these things. We want to have charity in how we respond to that. So, before we open our Bibles, I would like for us to pray one more time. Well, we'll be praying more than one more time, but pray right now. Oh, Father, Lord, we just uh, bow our hearts before you. This is your word. Where your word is, you are. Lord, these are truths that you want to build our lives upon. They are transformative when we hear them with faith. Without faith, Lord, it's impossible to please you without your spirit to uh, reveal to us your word. We go empty. So God, we cry out to you now to help us. And Lord, you know my weaknesses. For your help, as I speak in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, this is one of the definitive explanations of baptism in the New Testament or the New Covenant. It means the same thing. If you want to get baptized or you have been baptized by me and sat with me, we read this passage together. And we're going to land here eventually, but first we're going to spend some time 
looking at the tremendous amount of meaning New Covenant baptism in Christ draws from Old Covenant imagery and symbolism. I heard just this week a, a missions talk podcast and interview these missionaries from Papua New Guinea, and they these are the kinds of Christians that you go, I'm not sure I'm a Christian after hearing what they're doing. They they moved to, to Papua New Guinea, they learned the language, the normal language is spoken there, went up into this remote village, unreached people group, learned their language, phoneticized their language, wrote their, created a written language, translated the Bible, so these people could have the Bible in their language. This is a multi-year effort. And so when they finally got to the place, they could start evangelizing these people, they said, you would think, you know, they might think we'd start in the Gospel of John. Let's go through that. But they didn't. They started in Genesis. To understand the roots of faith, understand God's nature, God's purposes, what he did, the fall. Similarly, we see the New Testament teachers, when they're giving us an understanding of God's purposes, they also go into the Old Testament to bring out what is said there to help us understand these truths that we experience the sacraments. God spent thousands of years crafting the powerful New Testament baptism. And so let's look, I think we'll have it on the overhead, uh, what the Apostle Paul gives us in this area in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is God's word. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the tree, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock of Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, so the Apostle Paul here, saying, there was a baptism, there's a prefiguring, there's this symbol of baptism as they went through the Red Sea, then through the Jordan. Later we'll see they were baptized and they followed the rock and the rock was Christ. All of Israel was baptized into Moses and the cloud and the Red and the cloud and then the Red Sea. That generation died in the desert because they would not go to fight in the promised land through unbelief. Moses himself died in the desert because he disobeyed God and messed up God's symbolism. Don't mess up God's symbolism, y'all. It got Moses in trouble. So, what happened? Because at 17, God told Moses to strike the rock for water to come out. And he struck it with his staff. And water gushed forth. I believe symbolizing Christ's death on the cross. Because the rock is Christ, Paul tells us. He struck the rock under the command of God. Later, in Numbers 20, God told Moses to speak to the rock. Symbolizing, I believe, our access to Christ through prayer. But Moses was fed up with the people of Israel, and he struck the rock again. Water gushed forth, but God said, for this, Moses, you'll see the promised land from Mount Nebo, but you will not go in yourself. So the next now-believing generation that had been born in the desert... The generation of Israel was baptized when they crossed the Jordan with Joshua, leaving Moses, the giver of the law, on the other side. This new generation did fight the evil of the land and overcame it. 
So we too, when we're baptized into Christ, we're given power to overcome evil within and to stop sinning. We also see later in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, they crossed the Jordan again as on dry land. Elisha rolled up his mantle and smacked the water and it parted like it did before. Elisha, through baptism in effect, joining Moses in the wilderness, who together represent the law and the prophets. Then Elisha went back across the border and smacked it again, crossed on dry land as the new Elijah to call Israel to repentance. And that's why John the Baptist went baptizing where? At the, in the Jordan. I, Jesus said John was the certification of Elijah who had to return before the Messiah. It was prophesied. John was in the spirit of Elijah. That's why he was at the Jordan. John's baptism of repentance was a call to all of Israel to receive the better, the new and better Moses and Elijah, who is Jesus Christ. John baptized in the Jordan to honor and align his work with the plan of God for the people of God. And Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan to complete all righteousness. It's fascinating, isn't it? So every covenant has a sign or a seal. The sign of God's covenant with Abraham was circumcision. Jace taught us some time ago the Sabbath was the sign of the old covenant of the law from Moses. Those signs showed that those who received them were part of the family of God and that they were separate from the unbelieving nations. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus which symbolically joins us to Christ and the church while separating us from the fallen world system. Baptism is the front door of the church. It symbolically demonstrates how lost, broken, fallen individuals are joined to Christ and his people. The church is like an embassy in a foreign nation. An embassy examines the claims of a citizen and then affirms that citizenship is qualified, the citizen is qualified to receive the benefits and the duties of citizenship. So Karen and I, we were in Brazil, we would go to the consulate and we would show our passport and we would say, we need this service, we have to do this thing, and they would look at it and they'd say, well, yeah, as far as we can tell, you're an American citizen, come on in, and we would do what we needed to do. So the church is like that. The local church examines the testimony of repentance from sin and faith in Christ in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of the new believer and then receives him or her into the community through baptism. Baptism, in effect, is the passport for the believer. That's why new believers should wait to take communion until he is baptized. Also, Baptism signals to the elders that the individual is inviting pastoral care and discipleship, which could include discipline. If baptism is the front door of the church, then church discipline is the back door, so to speak, where the church, sadly, at some point may decide we can no longer affirm this person is a Christian because they are persisting in unrepentant, scandalous sin. God's ways are wonderful. Because God's plan has always been to have a people 
for his own glory. Baptism is best and most correctly administered with the gathered local church. It is the first step of membership. And the end goal, I just love this passage, it's not a baptism passage, but it's the end goal of what God is doing through baptism, joining us to the church. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, God's word says this, and this is marvelous, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not as an individual wandering through life by yourself, but as part of God's people. Well, God has no grandchildren. Every salvation has to be personally received. Conversion and baptism joins us to the church. So let's say your friend leads you to the Lord. And then a week or two later, you're hanging out of the pool, and he goes, hey, wait a minute. Have you, have you been baptized? No, no. Well, let me just do it right now. Let me just baptize you real quick. Is that baptism? Not really. Not what God's going for. It may be emotionally meaningful, but it misses God's purposes for baptism. So here's a good definition of baptism. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing himself or her to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him uh, off or her him or her off from the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God does. Again, we have charity for those who might differ in some of those points, but we believe the great sweep of Scripture brings us health, understanding it this way. Now, we do see exceptions to baptizing in harmony with the local church, like the Ethiopian eunuch in, Acts, in the book of Acts, Philip's uh, evangelizes him from Isaiah. He comes to salvation. He says, the Ethiopian the eunuch says, hey, here's water, prevents me from being baptized. He was baptized. Well, that was very unique for that eunuch. Um, he, he was on the way back to Ethiopia. He was not going to be part of the church. So, so yeah, so there may be circumstances, maybe persecuted church, maybe places where a baptism can't be, uh, can't be as public as you might want it to be. You might get married in private. How much better to have a church service? You know, you can get married without that. You can get married without having a honeymoon, but that would be tragic as well. There are things that make it better, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's important to understand that uh, discern what scripture in Scripture is descriptive and what's prescriptive. What the book of Acts described isn't necessarily prescribed for us to do exactly that way. All of Scripture helps us understand God's purposes, how then we should live. For example, we see in Acts chapter 2, the church had all things in common. There was just this amazing liberality. People were selling things and giving it to the church, and people were helping the poor, and everything just, hey, if I've got it, it's yours, which is beautiful. But it's not a proof text for communism. 
Because there's a lot of places in Scripture where it's very clear. Jesus himself, when you had it, wasn't that in, in the later of the apostles? So there is private property, and that's part of his stewardship. We own it for the glory of God. So we have to realize, okay, that happened, and we learn from it, but that doesn't mean that's how it's supposed to happen all the time. So let's look at the first baptism service after the resurrection of Christ. I think we'll have it for you overhead. This is so powerful. This is so wonderful. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter's taught to Jews from all the nations. They've heard them speaking in tongues and glorifying God in their languages. They're convicted. And they say, brothers, what then should we do? And Peter says to them in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort with them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is key, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And they're added that day about 3,000 souls. So what stands out here? Each person baptized had received the word by faith and with repentance. In this passage, every other one of the New Testament, baptism is performed on believers. It's believers' baptism. It's a different, it's a sign of the new covenant. It's different from circumcision. There was no faith involved with circumcision. It is what brings us to the new kingdom is not being born to Christian parents. It's by believing in faith. And then we make this public proclamation. So we practice believer's baptism here and believe that that is faithful to Scripture. And also, what an awesome thing to stand there dripping wet, proclaiming God's glory, standing a testimony to the church, to visitors, to princes and principalities, declaring, I have died with Christ. That's glorious. Baptism announces, as I just said, spiritual death and the resurrection of the believer. So, you've been saying, Romans 6, Romans 6, Romans 6. All right, let's go to Romans 6. And let's see how many times sin, the word sin and some iteration of death are referred to in this passage. It's so powerful. Romans 6, verse 1. God's word says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. Let me just stop. That death happened when you gave your life to Jesus, not when you got baptized. We've been united with him in death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died 
has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Hallelujah. We are alive in Christ if we have died and been raised again with him. Seven times, I think, it talked about sin here. Six or seven times. Fourteen, fifteen times, uh, died, death, crucified. Listen, you came in here today and you don't know Jesus. Here's, here's what Scripture says. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for your sins. By faith, you can become born again and receive His very nature. When you die to yourself, to live to Him. Hallelujah. Verse 12 is the therefore of baptism. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen, if you want to be a Christian, it is much more than joining a loving community. It is much more than fitting in with your friends. It is much more than wanting a healthy moral lifestyle, much more than family values, much more than wanting to come under the protection of a loving God. A person who truly wants to become a Christian is convinced, is script, is overcome the reality that I am a sinner that I deserve eternity in hell, and my only hope is Christ. There is no moral improvement plan. There's no act of penance, no preponderance of good deeds that will free us from our sin. The only way to overcome sin is to die. Baptism is about your death is where you surrender your whole life to God and die with Christ. That's why immersion in the waters of baptism is so important. You're literally being buried in a watery grave, submerged, to be raised in the newness of life with Christ. Baptism, however old you are, if you're 12 years old, if you're 8 years old, if you're 30 years old, uh, baptism should be a defining event in your life where you are unmistakably changed. A.W. Tozer wrote a book that that I'm reading, and recently he wrote a chapter called The Need for a Definitive Experience. I want to quote from that. He says, the reasonable conclusion I gather about the children of Israel passing through the Jordan is that they knew its significance. It was a dramatic and colorful experience. They knew when they were in the river, knew when they had gotten to the other side, knew it was time and place to put up a monument, and they marked it as a sign of a clear spiritual event in their lives. 
you're not consciously aware that experience took place, I conclude it didn't happen. Sounds reasonable to me. That's saying if you didn't get dunked in water, he's saying if you didn't die to your sin and live to Christ and be transformed, you may have been baptized, but you're struggling with sin. You don't have victory because you haven't really surrendered your life to him. Hopefully that's not true of anyone here, but it may be. And if it is, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Receive Christ. Give your life to him. But if it did happen, if you are consciously aware of your sin and have died to yourself and trust in the shed blood of Jesus, here's the glorious promise. If we have been united with him in a death like give, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil the victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood of God. Amen. Just like Israel began to defeat their enemies in the promised land by the power of an indestructible life, you will begin to defeat sin in your life and grow in your love for the Savior. Not perfectly, but progressively, you will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in holiness. And that's what baptism is about. Point number two. That was point number one. Point number two... The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. So we'll look at two passages. We'll turn, if you will, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, beginning of verse 17. Open your Bibles if you don't mind. We'll look at that a little bit. Uh, in a bit, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 11 as well. Uh, once we've, again, surveyed scriptures to understand some of what it teaches about the Lord's Supper. So we're going to start with one of the passages in one of the Gospels where Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. And that's in Matthew 26, 17. God's Word says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, Today I say to you, one of you will betray me. They all, they, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Such pathos, such poignancy, such intimacy, such treachery, such hope. God and man at table are sat down. Not finally here, not fully here, but, but the door is being opened for a whole race of fallen men and women. Now, clearly, it's not just a coincidence that Jesus instituted the second sacrament, the Lord's Supper, at the celebration of the Passover. Here again, thousands of years of careful symbolism point to the substance of God through the Lord's Supper. Let's rehearse that. After 400 years of slavery in Exodus, we read, uh, in 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the people of God were crying out for deliverance. God heard their cry and began to deliver them from death through death. The death of a lamb. God sent an angel to slay all the firstborn of the land, but everyone who had the blood of the lamb, the two on the lentil, and the two doorposts was passed over. Amazing the cross right there. They ate the lamb with unleavened bread. The, un the leaven symbolized sin, so the blood of a perfect lamb was shed, and the lamb was eaten with holy bread. That is the picture that informs communion. To a people who had slain lambs for thousands of years to remember their deliverance from Egypt, the words of John the Baptist about Jesus must have been riveting. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Their minds would have gone to that. This is the Lamb of Lambs. This is the new and better Lamb. This is the final Lamb that will take away the sins of the world. Hallelujah. So, what are the components that we see in the Lord's Supper? I think I found nine. First is the betrayal. All four Gospels describe that last Passover meal. Remarkably, the Gospel of John does not even mention the Lord's Supper. But they all mention the betrayal. All the disciples knew it could have been them. They knew they were sinners. 
They knew they were able to do that. One element in taking the Lord's Supper is the recognition that we have all sinned and need a Savior. We should be consciously aware of that when we take the cup and the bread. Had we been there, we would have betrayed as well. Two, simply profoundly, the cup represents the blood of Christ, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, and the bread represents His body given for us, the elements, the cup and the bread. Three, it's a celebration of forgiveness. He said to do it for the forgiveness of sin. So whenever we take communion, we're rehearsing that. Our sinfulness, but joyfully, gladly, freely, with consciences purchased by and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we're celebrating, yes, Lord, you have forgiven me. Number four, the Lord's Supper is a meal to be taken regularly. All of Israel took the pastor of meal to get together every year. We'll see in 1 Corinthians, looks like they took it every week. Jesus instituted as often as you do this. It's a regular practice of the church. Five, it is a participation in Christ. It is, a, it is not just a symbolic event. It's also a participation in Christ. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the cup and bread are not transubstantiated. They, they don't actually become the body and the blood of Jesus, as some have incorrectly believed. But by faith, we do receive a real and powerful moment of participation with Christ, and not just with Christ, with each other. So it is a participation in Christ and each other. That's why we do it together. That's why I love to hear the crunch of our matzah, which is gluten-free, so it's crunchy. That's why I love that, because not just me by myself, it's us being one body through the one bread. Six, it is remembrance of Christ's death and a proclamation of the coming kingdom. It looks back and it looks forward. Luke records that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me regularly while we anticipate eating that meal with him one day in his kingdom. All right, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. We'll start in verse 17. Flip over there in your Bibles. We're going to dig into this. which you have noticed some things as I read this. Oh, listen, the poor, the poor Corinthians, they messed up so much, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully for us, because we can learn from their mistakes, hopefully. So, as we read, let's watch for the distinctions. Let's notice how often the phrase, when you come together, appears multiple times, and look for qualifiers and conditions to properly take the Lord's Supper. Uh, so there's some conditions in here to properly do it. So I'll read verses uh, 17 through 34, and you can follow along in your Bible. And so let's just realize the tone of this passage. The Apostle Paul is hot. He is unhappy. He is righteously, righteously angry, something I rarely am, something he was. 
So his tone here is very strong. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Yikes. So Paul centers himself and says, listen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and given thanks to you, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, here comes the qualification. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. Everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. So, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. For if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When I was hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But other things, I will give you direction when I come. Wow, what a mess. Let's draw some truth out of those that will help us as we think about these things. A few more components of the Lord's Supper. Four or five times, Paul identifies a gathered church by saying, when you come together. When you come together as a church, one time even it says. Clearly, the Lord's Supper is to be taken by the gathered church. It's not a private celebration taken on your own. It's not a devotional act. It is where we participate with the Lord and with each other. Taking communion as the gathered church incorporates all the rich meaning God intended through thousands of years of symbolism and practice. God's looking for a people. This passage indicates they took the Lord's Supper weekly, which we do here. Uh, In some ways, our whole service is designed to end with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is the crowning moment of the whole sermon, where we, of the whole service, where we, having sat under God's word, now we go to the cross. But there is uh, there is liberty in how often a church takes the Lord's Supper, as long as it happens regularly. 
Now, of course, we can imagine the persecuted church where the Lord's Supper can only be taken on house churches and the like, and situations that, that you know, there's liberty in that. So that happens, certainly, but, we, but, the, but the exception should prove the rule. So, hey, there these categories. There's, there are worthy and unworthy manners. So don't take it in an unworthy manner. Certainly, you must be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ to take communion. So I would explain each week who should and should not participate in communion. Um, and since we live in community, we come to know you as a believer in Christ through your public proclamation of faith through baptism. So children, if you love the Lord, when you're ready, be baptized, and then you can take communion when you have come into the body and fully accepted that. Number nine, the need to examine yourself. Again, that's an adult conscious act to examine yourself. All Christians come to the table in need of forgiveness. We can all acknowledge our ongoing need for current sin. However, there are significant areas of unrepentant sin in your life, in a Christian's life, a broken relationship with another Christian. You should not take communion until that's reconciled, until that's confessed, until you're bringing forth fruit of your repentance. Usually that requires confession of someone else to help you walk in confession, as Elizabeth's excellent word from the Lord said to us earlier. Let me kind of land this on communion with a powerful quote from John Calvin that really incorporates all those elements and I find very healthy and helpful. He says, this is the worthiness the best and only kind we can bring to God to offer our vileness and our unworthiness to him so that his mercy may make us worthy of him. To despair in ourselves so that we may be comforted in him. To abase ourselves so that we may be lifted up by him. To accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. Moreover, to aspire to that unity which he commends to us in his supper as he makes all of us one in himself to desire one soul, one heart, one tongue for all of us. We have weighed and considered these things well. These thoughts, though they may stagger us, will never lay us low. We arrive freshly repentant, a communion freshly aware of a need for a Savior, but able to rejoice, enter in, we have a Savior. Why I love taking, doing communion every week. Fresh reminder. So, one final aspect to grasp about the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are not purely symbolic. They are a means of grace to the believer, but have no effect at all on the unbeliever. Augustine, and Augustine calls a sacrament a visible word. A visible word, because it represents the promises of God as in a picture. And it places them, in our view, in graphic bodily form. It's well said. Thomas Kramer 
the chief liturgical architect of the English Reformation expresses this beautifully. We'll finish with this. He says it this way. So that the washing of water of baptism is, as it were, showing of Christ before our eyes and a sensible touching and feeling and groping of him to the confirmation of the inward faith which we have in him. And for this cause, Christ ordained the sacraments in bread and wine, which we eat and drink and be chief nutriments, uh, nutriments of, the, of our body to the intent that as surely as we see the bread and wine with our eyes, smell them with our noses, touch them with our hands, taste them with our mouths, so assuredly ought we to believe that Christ is a spiritual life and sustenance of our souls. Thus our Savior Christ hath ordained sensible signs and tokens whereby to allure and to draw us to more strength and more constant faith in Him. Ah, oh, glorious, glorious sacraments, glorious revelations of Jesus Christ Himself. All of the symbolism of the Old Testament points to sacraments, and they point to Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we, we marvel, Lord. Our, our minds can't contain it. Lord, the, the amazing lengths you went to to give us clarity. The thousands of symbols, shadows that you created and, and gave to your people Israel and all of them now simply, profoundly fulfill through Christ and experience to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Oh Lord, stir our faith. Stir our faith. Stir our faith in these things as we practice them today and next week. That you may be glorified and your church strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.